Hello, listeners. For the next two weeks, we're presenting something special, a union of our show's serial killers and solved murders. We've teamed up with the host from Solved Murders to dive into Australia's Jack the Ripper and see how solving one murder can lead to the capture of a horrific killer. Sometimes things are much darker than they seem. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, including the murder of children, and descriptions of dead bodies. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Alfred Spedding of Windsor, a suburb of Melbourne, Australia, knew little of the young couple living next door. They'd only been there for two weeks, and he'd yet to be invited over for dinner. He saw the pair coming and going, but that was the extent of his interactions with them. So he didn't think much of it when late on Christmas Eve, 1891, he heard sounds of metal banging on metal coming from their home. It almost sounded as if someone was working on the plumbing. He explained it away as simple housework, despite the strange hour. For all he knew, they'd had a surprise plumbing problem. It barely registered as important until early March, when Spedding saw detectives arrive at the now-abandoned house. And the body of the young woman, covered in concrete debris, emerged from within. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we'll take a look at Frederick Deeming, otherwise known as Australia's Jack the Ripper. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. For the next two episodes, we're teaming up with Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie from the Solved Murders podcast. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders, Serial Killers, and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free exclusively on Spotify. Carter and Wendy, thanks for being here. Absolutely. This is the first of two episodes on Frederick Deeming, an Englishman who made a living drifting across the globe picking up trades as he went along. But this charming man also held a temper, and those closest to him paid the price. Today, we'll uncover Deeming's accused crimes and the investigation that brought him to justice. Next time, we'll take a deep dive into Deeming's childhood and his disturbing claims about his psyche. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show.
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On March 3rd, 1892, John Stamford, a local butcher and landlord, decided to conduct some business. A woman wanted to view one of his properties, 57 Andrew Street. The previous tenant, a stocky Englishman with a thick red handlebar mustache, who Stanford knew as Mr. Druin, had left suddenly after signing a lease in mid-December. Stanford's prospective replacement arrived at the quaint two-story house, and Stanford brought her inside. He showed her around the building, but something was off. Stanford smelled a rotten odor. The woman didn't complain too much, but she noticed it too. For all the pair knew, a rodent of some kind had died in the walls or crawl space. Theoretically, a problem like that could be cleaned up quickly. Their reactions changed when they entered the second upstairs bedroom. Stanford noticed the fireplace bulge a little, pushing up the hearthstone. That was odd. Druin and his wife hadn't told Stanford about any alterations they'd made to the home. They left without giving him any sort of notice at all. Under normal circumstances, he wouldn't have cared that they'd done some renovations. But a recession was looming, and he needed tenants. And that smell, combined with the fireplace, was an issue. So he rang his agent to have him take a look. The agent arrived a short while later. He and Stanford approached the fireplace and found the decaying smell grew stronger. The bulging hearthstone appeared to be the source. They both grabbed a side and lifted. They saw newly poured uneven concrete that had begun cracking. They looked closer to find a foul liquid seeping out of those crevices. Stamford quickly exited the building and summoned the authorities. Sergeant Patrick O'Laughlin from the Melbourne Police Department entered the house that afternoon. He immediately picked up on the unmistakable stench of death. The smell worsened with each step. O'Laughlin entered the second bedroom and Stamford pointed out the fireplace. O'Laughlin saw the ooze. Now he just needed to unearth it to discover the source. The group slowly broke apart the concrete and spotted long brown hair, and then the top of what looked like a skull. They kept digging. Piece by piece, they grew closer to understanding this mystery. After several hours of work, they unearthed a shoulder, an arm, then legs. When they finally stopped digging, the body of a woman curled up in the fetal position lay before them wearing a nightdress covered in blood. Her head appeared cracked open. O'Laughlin's heart surely sank. It was the worst possible outcome. Murder. After fully extracting the body, O'Laughlin sent it to the morgue. A coroner examined the body and found the woman had been anywhere between 20 to 30 years old. Though the body had decomposed some, the concrete had kept it well-preserved. Her cause of death was evident. She had a large skull fracture on the top of her head. 
and a deep gash that went across her throat, almost from ear to ear. With the autopsy completed, authorities in Melbourne launched an investigation into the woman's slaying. They put their top men on the case, Detective Henry Cossey and Sergeant Bill Considine. The duo got to work finding a murderer. The two detectives went to the crime scene, hoping to find something that might reveal their suspect's identity. Cossey and Considine arrived at an empty house. A few reporters had gathered outside, looking for any bit of information they could to publish a story. The pair made their way past the throng and into 57 Andrew, and noticed that the horrid smell had mostly vanished. They took stock of the small home. Expired food was out, and piles of soot had been left in each fireplace. It appeared that the previous occupant had destroyed any useful information before he left. Finding little in the way of evidence, the detectives made their way upstairs. Detective Causey noticed a bloodstain no bigger than a half dollar on the ground in one of the rooms. The pair discovered another streak of blood and a strand of hair a few feet away. The other side of the room held a wash basin for bathing. A larger bloodstain sat at the base of the tub. It was faded as if someone had tried cleaning it up. Kazi and Considine also found the impressions of several fingerprints on the wash basin. But forensics and fingerprint technology weren't fully developed or widely employed in the 1890s. So while the detectives found plenty of evidence, little of it was useful at the time. After hours of searching, the detectives left. And while they had a better understanding of the events surrounding the killing, they weren't anywhere closer to apprehending the killer. Luckily, they weren't the only ones interested in finding out what happened. Shortly after the detectives left, Alfred Spedding, the next-door neighbor, walked over to the house. He now knew the noises he'd heard on Christmas Eve had been much more sinister than he'd first thought. And he wanted answers. With no one looking, Spedding entered the home. Spedding trod through the home, looking at the remnants of the lives of his neighbors. He had a hard time wrapping his mind around how such an awful thing had happened so close to home. And even worse, he'd heard some of it. He cast his gaze over every inch of the house. Then the kitchen fireplace caught his eye. Spedding curiously poked through the ashes. Soot caked his fingers as they brushed against something solid, a half-burnt piece of paper. Spedding brought it to his eyes and saw a partial correspondence that read, Mr. Albert Williams requests respectfully the pleasure of the company of, at a social evening at Allen's Commercial Hotel, Rainhill, on Wednesday, August 10th, 1891. Williams, that was this man's name. If he'd talked to his neighbors, he might have known that earlier. He carefully picked this important clue and headed down to the police station. Spedding sheepishly handed over the evidence when he arrived. For detectives, the clue proved invaluable. They now had their man. Well, at least his name. Albert Williams. Coming up, the authorities' search for the killer begins in earnest. They say time heals all wounds, but sometimes time can do anything but. Welcome to Cold Cases, the new Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Carter Roy. Every Monday, 
Join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases explores the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Will justice be served? Only time will tell. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In March of 1892, investigators in Melbourne were getting to the bottom of a murder case. They'd found a woman's body buried under layers of cement in the fireplace of her home in Windsor. Now they were looking for her killer. So far, they had a name and a description. Albert Williams was five foot seven with a stocky build, fair hair, and a red mustache. Most importantly, he had a British accent. And while that gave them a start, they still needed more information to track him down. They began by speaking with Stamford, the landlord. He told them the couple hadn't been seen since late December of 1891. Additionally, the husband gave the last name of Druin. Fake names weren't that uncommon in the late 1800s, and it appeared they had found one that they could keep in their back pockets to help track down Williams. Next, the police released a description of Williams to the public and then got to work hunting down leads. Using information gathered from Stanford, the landlord, authorities knew that Williams had only been in the home for two weeks before the killing. That gave them a better approximation of the pair's movements. Working backwards, they tracked where the couple had been. They likely tracked the couple's past travel using immigration records, and they found that Williams and his wife Emily had come to Australia from the UK, aboard a ship called the Kaiser Wilhelm II at the beginning of December. Authorities could now put a name to the murder victim. Emily Williams. They sent this crucial information to agencies in the UK to see if they could track down Albert Williams as well. But while they waited for any news from abroad, local authorities hit the streets. Detectives Causey and Considine located other passengers on the ship to see if they had any information about Williams. They found a man named Max Hirschfeld. Hirschfeld said that while on the boat, Williams gave off an air of importance and wealth. He wore a neat suit and a fashionable bowler hat and donned a series of expensive-looking rings on his hands and diamonds on his collar. Hirschfeld said that Williams claimed to be an engineer who had had previous experience in the military. Williams also said that he'd been all over the world to places like Mexico and had accumulated a fortune of a few thousand dollars. Other passengers also remembered Williams' larger-than-life presence, yet few on the boat had fond memories of him. He often came off as pompous, arrogant, and at times brash. It wasn't rare for him to quarrel with other passengers over any given topic. He liked to view himself as intelligent and clever. 
In one strange example, he boasted to several passengers that he turned a pair of knitting needles into pliers. It seemed like an odd thing to brag about, but it highlighted how much Williams wanted others to think highly of him. In contrast, the passengers liked his wife, Emily. She appeared pleasant and earnest and made good conversation, particularly about how much she looked forward to her new life in Australia. She even mentioned she was from Rainhill, a village near Liverpool, which aligned with the burnt note the authorities had as evidence. However, that proved the extent of what the detectives learned about the pair. Passengers didn't have any crucial information on Albert Williams's whereabouts, and the authorities weren't any closer to finding their man. Around this time, the public first learned about the crime as media members swarmed on the story. They printed the sordid details of Emily Williams' death, and readers across Australia were captivated. Most couldn't believe the gruesome nature of the murder. It was hard to fathom what type of person could kill their spouse and bury them under their fireplace. More importantly, the public wondered where he was and if he would kill again. Emily had no known family in Australia. With no one to claim the body, authorities were set to bury Emily in a pauper's grave. Hundreds of people gathered on the day of her burial to get a glimpse of the casket as it went by. Emily's fate struck a nerve with many, and as the interest grew, so did a sense of urgency amongst the public. They wanted answers, and now. The authorities scrambled as they felt the mounting pressure. After several long days of searching, they hadn't gotten a single useful tip about his location. For all they knew, he'd changed his identity and vanished once again. They'd hit a dead end in their search for Albert Williams. According to Detective Causey, he and Considine headed to a local bar to unwind and go over their notes. They knew they had their man. No one else was considered a suspect. But the killer could have made it back to the United Kingdom or anywhere across the globe. Finding him seemed impossible. The pair was commiserating in their hopelessness when they overheard another patron at the bar say something interesting. He told a story about a man he'd met on a steamship to Western Australia. This patron said that this man claimed he'd fashioned some pliers out of two knitting needles. Both detectives couldn't believe what they were hearing. A lucky break. They immediately went over to the man at the bar and introduced themselves as detectives. They asked if the man had any more information about the gentleman on the ship. He replied that of course he did. It had been over a month since his trip to Perth in Western Australia. But it wasn't easy to forget someone like Baron Swanston. And with that, the detectives had a name and a location. Or at least that's the story they like to tell. In reality, a man named Ambrose Lamond had actually called the police with information about a passenger he'd met on a ship after reading about the case in the paper. He then met with the detectives and told them the story about the pliers. Regardless of how they got the information or why they decided to tell the more fantastical story, the detectives could only hope that their man hadn't fled further than Western Australia. The detectives hurried back to the office and sent a telegram to their colleagues on the other side of the county. The bulletin gave William's name and his new alias, along with a physical description. 
Both Kazi and Considine hoped that the information would arrive in time for someone to nab their suspect. Authorities in Western Australia used the bulletin to pin down Williams' location. Likely through letters written by Williams as Swanston, the authorities figured out he was in a mining town. The wire was then delivered to one Constable Evan Williams in the morning of March 11, 1892. The constable worked in the Western Australian mining town of Southern Cross, and beyond the normal cases of drunkards and petty theft, nothing sensational usually happened in his rugged outpost. The wire changed all that. He needed to be on the lookout for a man named Albert Williams, who used the alias Baron Swanston. He was roughly 5'7", with a stocky build and a red mustache. He also spoke with a British accent. Authorities in Melbourne wanted him for murder. So he set out to catch a killer. He recruited the town's blacksmith, Jim Faircloth, to assist, in case anything got out of hand when they got to William's residence. The constable scanned the sea of sooty faces and burly bodies of miners that passed by. He didn't spot a red mustache. That was good. That meant Williams would still be in his home. When the constable arrived at the home, he saw his man and went in for the arrest. Williams didn't resist. Instead, he feigned ignorance, as the constable told him he was being detained. Williams claimed he'd never even been to Windsor. He swore he was Baron Swanston, an honest mining engineer. The constable didn't pay any mind to Williams' words as he hauled him in. With the perp in custody, Constable Williams went to the suspect's residence and searched through his belongings. It didn't net a smoking gun, but that hardly mattered. The constable knew he had the right man in custody. He sent word of Williams' apprehension back to Melbourne. Both Causey and Considine were elated but hesitant. It wouldn't be the first time that they thought a suspect had been collared only to be a case of mistaken identity. They needed to make sure they had their man. So Causey located Max Hirschfeld, the man who'd seen Williams on the ship to Melbourne, and headed to Perth. The trip took several days, and when they arrived in Perth, They met up with Constable Evan Williams, who took them back to see the suspect. A man about five foot seven with a red beard stood in front of them. Hirschfeld took one look at him and gave the positive ID. Causey must have been relieved. While it had only been a few weeks since the investigation began, the pressure from the public must have been immense. The people clamored for answers, and now they had them. Well, at least most of them. Williams still harbored some terrible secrets. Coming up, authorities in the United Kingdom make a grim discovery. Now, back to the story. At the end of March 1892, authorities began their weeks-long journey back to Melbourne with Albert Williams. There, he'd face a trial for the murder of his wife, Emily. Constable Evan Williams and Detective Causey accompanied him. Williams had been on the run for over two months, and he proved to be brash, charming, and antagonistic in custody. Williams always took the opportunity to chide some passerby or lie to a stranger who might stumble into a conversation with him. The constable even fell for some of Williams' wily ways. The pair talked and got along well enough during the carriage and train rides. They were even spotted playing a game of checkers together. But it appeared that Albert Williams took advantage of the constable's good nature. At one point, the constable allowed Williams to sleep alone in his cell. 
Without supervision, he decided to pull a neat and painful trick. He shaved off what he could of his mustache with a broken piece of glass, then pulled each remaining hair out one by one. He emerged from the cell the next morning feeling good about what he'd accomplished. He likely thought it would help his chances in court, as every description of him included details about his red mustache. It was a cunning move, and one that demonstrated his desperation. Williams appeared to be a rat caught in a trap, and would try by any means to get out, even if those means were ultimately futile. Local reporters had their ears to the ground, and it didn't take long for them to pick up on Williams' personal story. A reporter back in England was the first to put together a more complete picture of the man and his past. Samuel Lowe worked for a paper in Britain when he got word about the salacious killing from his paper's Australian bureau. One of their writers had learned about the burnt-up piece of paper that the neighbor, Alfred Spedding, had found at 57 Andrew Street. Lowe's boss sent him to Rainhill to find out all he could about Williams. He spoke with as many locals in the small town as he could. The town's population only numbered a few hundred, so he found plenty of people who knew Williams, at least in passing. Slowly, a picture of the man began emerging. He learned that Williams had moved to Rainhill in late July 1891 after claiming to have spent several years abroad. He'd signed a six-month lease to live in a large home known as Dinham Villa. He claimed to have recently retired from military service and had spent time renovating the home. One contractor had even helped him lay a new concrete floor in his kitchen and other parts of the house. Locals said that for a time, right after arriving in Rainhill, his sister Marie and her four children came to live with Williams. She seemed pleasant enough, but didn't spend much time getting to know people in the neighborhood. Lowe had hoped to track her down, but she apparently hadn't stayed in Rainhill long, and no one had seen her in a while. A new woman began showing up at the house soon after Marie and the children exited the picture. It was Emily. Williams began courting Emily shortly after he moved to town. He wooed her with tales of global adventuring. He seemed intent on marrying the 26-year-old. Lowe discovered that Williams moved quickly. The pair were wed on September 22, 1891, three months before Emily's death. According to local rumors, though, Williams wasn't an upstanding man. Local whispers were that he'd been seen walking around town with another woman who may have been his wife meaning that he'd be committing bigamy if he married Emily. Of course, these were only rumors, at least from what Lowe could find during his investigation. But from most accounts, Emily seemed excited about her new life with Williams, and while digging into their marriage records, Lowe learned that her maiden name was Mather, and he found that Emily's mother, Dove Mather, still lived nearby. So he went over to talk with her. Dove proved forthcoming in giving information about her daughter when he knocked on her door. Yes, Emily was in Australia. Yes, she'd married a man named Albert Williams. Yes, she'd corresponded with Emily and her husband recently. Dove presented Lowe with several letters she had received from the couple. One from Albert had been postmarked as recently as December 29, 1891. In it, Williams claimed Emily was very happy and that plans had changed. He received an offer to work in China on a three-year contract. After that, they'd return home to England. 
For Lo, of course, this seemed odd. He'd heard that Emily had died around Christmas Eve. These thoughts consumed Lo, but he kept the conversation going. He wanted as much information as he could gather, but Dove started shutting down. She wanted to know why this strange man had come to her door and why he cared so much about Emily. She refused to answer anything else until he told her what his business was. It dawned on Lo that no one had told Dove about her daughter's death. He did not relish the moment when he told her the truth. Her daughter's murder proved so shocking, the blood rushed from Dove's face, and she passed out on the spot. Lo helped Dove get back on her feet and then got back to work. He did not envy her situation, but he had a job to do. He printed plenty of stories in the following days, including his encounter with Dove, and kept tracking down information about Williams, whose tale had drawn in interested readers. But as Lowe continued digging into the story, something kept nagging at him. He'd heard rumors of Williams being married to another woman, and he couldn't seem to find this sister. He thought, perhaps, his sister wasn't his sister at all. Maybe she was actually his first wife. This thought floored Lowe. If she was his previous wife and she was missing, it was possible she ended up like Emily. After all, he had talked to a contractor who'd helped Lowe lay new concrete throughout his kitchen. Lowe went to the local authorities with his theory. It didn't take much convincing to get them to William's old home. At 9 a.m. March 16, 1892, Lowe and the authorities entered Dinham Villa. The house sat quiet and empty. No one had been in it for many months. Dust covered everything and cobwebs filled the corners. The group went to the kitchen and saw the new concrete pour. They grabbed pickaxes and got to work. They labored for hours, chipping away the thick concrete floor. As they dug... A sickly smell overtook the room. The stench overwhelmed some of the crew. They stepped outside for a breath of fresh air. There, they noticed as people walked by, not knowing of the potential horrors inside. The public had read about Albert Williams' crimes in Australia and knew he used to live in that home. Within a few hours, they knew their activity would draw them in like moths to a flame. Authorities left the fresh air and returned to the home. They'd gotten several inches down in the concrete. They carved a trench that ran through the kitchen, and the smell had grown nearly unbearable. After a few more cracks with the pick, they found a truly grim sight. The remains of a child encased in concrete. The child's body had decomposed, but its nightshirt remained intact. Their discoveries would only grow worse from there. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers, and thanks to Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy for joining us. We'll be back next time with part two of our story, where we'll uncover crucial details of Deeming's younger life and examine accusations that he might have been Jack the Ripper. For more information on the case, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Devil's Work by Gary Linnell extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. 
Serial Killers and Solved Murders are Spotify originals from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, Freddie Rivera, and Carly Madden. This special episode of Serial Killers and Solved Murders was written by Robert Tyler Walker, edited by Giles Hobseth, fact-checked by Claire Cronin, researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Bruce Kitovich. This special episode of Serial Killers and Solved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie, Greg Polson, Vanessa Richardson, and Carter Roy. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, explore the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Catch a new episode of Cold Cases every Monday. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.